Hi, I'm Cleo. I'm graduating in a few months with a PhD in English and Renaissance Studies, and I realized what I really want to do with my life is to start a podcast about Taylor Swift. Taylor is literally awesome, and despite, or perhaps because of her many fans, academics don't seem to take her seriously. I searched our online library catalog, and I found that the high point of Taylor's popularity in the Academy was 2012. In that year, she's mentioned once in an article called Exploring an Alternative In-Car Music Background Designed for Driver Safety. The authors briefly mentioned that a British company made a list of recommended safe driving tracks, placing Taylor's love story at the top because of its moderate tempo, and in an article called A Song to Remember, Emerging Adults Recall Memorable Music, Taylor's Our Song is mentioned as part of an analysis of songs that people reported as being particularly meaningful to them, along with the Beatles' All My Loving. Despite the lack of academic interest in Taylor, what stands out to me here is the widespread love for Taylor in popular culture. She was in the charts when that company rated the top songs for driver safety, and her music came up when people were asked what music was meaningful to them. So let's give Taylor the academic interest she deserves. Let's invent Taylor Swift's studies. So welcome to Studies in Taylor Swift, Episode 1, Taylor Swift and the Death of the Author. This episode will focus on Taylor's song The Lakes, the final song in her 2020 album Folklore. I'm going to start by reading the lyrics out loud as if they were a poem. I'm interested in reading these words as literature and asking what meanings emerge in this kind of reading. Of course, this ignores the role of music in shaping the meaning of the song. I don't know that much about music. If you do, and you have some insights about this, definitely get in touch. The Lakes by Taylor Swift is it romantic how all my elegies eulogize me? I'm not cut out for all these cynical clones, these hunters with cell phones. Take me to the lakes where all the poets went to die. I don't belong, and my beloved neither do you. Those Windermere peaks look like a perfect place to cry. I'm setting off, but not without my muse. What should be over, burrowed under my skin, in heart-stopping waves of hurt. I've come too far to watch some name-dropping sleaze tell me what are my words worth. Take me to the lakes, where all the poets went to die. I don't belong, and my beloved, neither do you. Those Windermere peaks look like a perfect place to cry. I'm setting off, but not without my muse. I want auroras and sad prose. I want to watch wisteria grow right over my bare feet, because I haven't moved in years. And I want you right here. A red rose grew up out of ice-frozen ground, with no one around to tweet it, while I bathe in cliffside pools with my calamitous love and insurmountable grief. Take me to the lakes, where all the poets went to die. I don't belong, and my beloved neither do you. Those Windermere peaks look like a perfect place to cry. I'm setting off, but not without my muse. No, not without you. The song starts off with a question, and a complicated question at that. In its simplest form, this is the question many of us no doubt ask ourselves. How cute is it that I'm completely obsessed with my own life at the expense of everything else? In the genius lyrics, which the website assures me are verified by Taylor Swift, romantic is spelled with a lowercase r, placing us firmly in the realm of the romantic as we currently understand it. This relationship between two people that is also, it becomes clearer, a relationship between the speaker and her own past selves. 
We'll talk about the difference between romantic with an uppercase and lowercase r in a second, but let's focus on this first interpretation. Taylor here interprets her own body of work as a series of eulogies for herself, and the rich verbal patterning of this song begins here, in this move between elegy, a poem about a death, often the death of a fellow poet, and eulogy, a speech at a funeral. And indeed, writing elegies for herself is in a way what Taylor did in Reputation when she killed off the old Taylor. I'm sorry. Theology has always been a genre as much about the speaking poet as the dead poet. For example, Percy Bysshe Shelley's elegy for his fellow romantic poet John Keats, who died young, although in Italy, not in the Lake District, begins with the lines, I weep for Adonais, he is dead. Oh, weep for Adonais, though our tears thaw not the frost which binds so dear a head. As you can see, this poem begins with the word I, foregrounding the speaker's weeping much more than Adonais's death, and thus the poem itself much more than its supposed subject. The poem reflects on the speaker and Adonais's shared mortality, as well as the poem's inability to turn back death to thaw the frost that binds Adonais's head. So wait, what does this poem by Shelley have to do with Taylor? Well, for one thing, Taylor is interested in big R romantic poetry such as this elegy, and we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do that, let's talk about the concept of authorship itself, and how it relates to interpreting a song by Taylor Swift. So in literary theory, there's this concept of the death of the author. This is the title of a famous essay by the French theorist Roland Barthes. In this essay, Bart argues that the moment something is written down, it loses its connection with whoever happened to write it. As he puts it, quote, writing is that neutral, composite, oblique space where our subject slips away, the negative where all identity is lost, starting with the very identity of the body writing. I think it's interesting to think about this in relation to Taylor Swift because she encourages this identification of her speaker with her own embodied self. But she also, as in Betty and August, takes on personas that she claims have nothing to do with her own self, or a very indirect relationship to her own self. But because she has set up this biographical expectation, this encourages speculation that she is in fact still talking about herself, culminating, for example, in readings of Betty as being about Taylor's own queerness we're definitely going to get to queer readings of Taylor. And in fact, this encapsulates my, or rather Bart's, point about the author. Because if you remove the necessity for everything to point to the personal life of the author, that opens up the possibility for your reading to be about the reader, and what is in the text unintentionally, what can be found that was not planted there. Therefore, I would argue, Taylor's own orientation, whatever that may be, doesn't matter. Ultimately, Betty is a queer text. It is a text that plays with expectations about gender and sexuality, both because it is a love song to a woman sung by a woman, and because it allows Taylor to play the part of a teenage boy, just as she performs masculinity in the music video of The Man. Note that it doesn't matter whether Taylor intends such a reading. We are talking about what is present within the song itself. As Bart would put it, the birth of the reader must be at the cost of the death of the author. And I want to say I find Bart's approach useful, but ultimately impossible to commit to. And in fact, theory has moved on somewhat since Bart wrote this. In a sort of response to Bart's injunction not to look beyond the text, the theorist Jack Derrida responded, There is nothing beyond the text. Where, after all, does the text stop? Does it include Taylor's statements about the meanings of her songs? Does it include promotional material around their release, internet think pieces, or indeed podcast episodes? 
Instead of worrying about any of this, let's just accept that our reading of Taylor will indeed be influenced by any available information, including biographical information, but will not be tied to what she may or may not have intended her text to say. Now, let's get back to Big R Romanticism. We know Taylor is interested in the Romantic poets, and specifically in the subset of them often called the Lake Poets. In the 19th century, you had a lot of poets like William Wordsworth and, and John Keats would spend a lot of time there. and there was a poet district, these these artists that moved there, mm. and they were kind of heckled for it and made fun of for it as being these eccentrics and these kind of odd, um, odd artists who decided that they just wanted to live there. And I, I remembered when we went, I thought, I, man, I could see this. You know, you you live in a cottage and you've got wisteria growing up, the outside of it, and you just, you, why, you know, of course they escaped like that. Of course they would do that. And they had their own community of other artists who had done the same thing. And, yeah. and then I've always, in my career, since I was probably about 20, written about this sort of cottage cottage backup plan that I have. You've been writing Go. about that forever. I've been writing you've about been writing forever. About, you've been writing about getting out forever. Yeah, so The Lakes is, is really talking a lot about relating to people who hundreds of years ago had the same exit plan and did it. So... Who were the Lake Poets, and what were they doing in the Lakes District anyway? The three poets most often referred to in this way are, well, most obviously William Wordsworth, who is puttingly name-checked in the song, and who did die in Cumbria in the Lakes District, but 50 years after he moved there. We know Taylor visited Wordsworth's grave in Grasmere, which incidentally is right next to a really great gingerbread shop. Definitely go there. The less well-known Robert Southey also lived in the Lakes District for much of his life and hung out with Wordsworth. And Samuel Taylor Coleridge briefly lived with Wordsworth but died in London, his life no doubt shortened by his opium addiction. These poets were joined by other literary figures of the 19th century, including Wordsworth's sister Dorothy, a prolific diarist. They went to the Lake District not so much to die, but for long walks and quiet. They also went there for a variety of other reasons, such as to examine the countryside and rural life as an almost anthropological project, to soothe their spirits when they became overwhelmed with modernity, to ask philosophical questions such as how much of the outside world actually exists outside the perceiving mind, and to find in the created world evidence of God's existence and benevolence. The work of William Wordsworth in particular reveals a complicated relationship to nature in which an attack Attachment to the natural world is sometimes seen as overwhelming, egotistical, although potentially a connection to God, and also as something to be grown out of in order to learn to appreciate other people. For example, in Wordsworth's famous lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, usually referred to as Tintern Abbey, Wordsworth considers that his loss of a once all-consuming love of nature has left him with the abundant recompense of being able to hear, as he puts it, the still sad music of humanity within the natural world. Is this in fact an improvement? And what does it mean to hear the music of humanity outside of actual interactions with other humans? This endlessly complex poem only gets more complex once you get to the end, and realize that the poem is in fact addressed to a companion. Wordsworth's speaker is not the solitary wanderer you might have thought him, but someone telling his walking companion, usually understood to be his sister Dorothy, a version of his life story that is meant to serve as a kind of lesson to her. You could draw some connections between the speaker of the lakes and of this poem, both of whom retreat to nature for solace from the modern world with a companion that they seem to mention almost as an afterthought. But the clearest connection between Taylor's song and English poetry is the line about the rose with no one to tweet it. This is reminiscent of a really famous, technically pre-romantic poem by Thomas Gray, Elegy, that's right, written in a country churchyard. 
The speaker of that poem wanders through a graveyard, considering the forgotten lives of those who lived and died in the obscurity of the countryside. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen, and waste its sweetness on the desert air. This blushing unseen is at once a symbol of being forgotten by history and of not being corrupted by modern life. Ray writes of these dead villagers, Far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, their sober wishes never learned to stray. Along the cool sequestered vale of life, they kept the noiseless tenor of their way. In Gray's poem, as in Wordsworth's and as in Taylor's song, there is an equation of the countryside with not being known, and also maybe not becoming fully oneself, or even fully human, as if the natural world muffles human life and human achievements. But there is also a realization that one has oneself been corrupted by the world outside the countryside, as well as a twinge of envy that the speaker is not able to blush unseen or go untweeted. I'm going to take us into a close reading of Taylor's poem with this in mind, that when she is talking about the countryside, she is also thinking about a life without fame, ordinary life, or some approximation of it. This is a song that is very interested in patterned language. Right at the beginning, not only do you get the elegy-eulogy tongue twister, but the cynical clones, hunters with cell phones, dyad, emphasizing with this rare perfect rhyme the sameness of those who persecute her. In fact, the rhymes in this song, aside from the recurring cry and die, which sets up this connection between Taylor and the lake poets, she goes to the peaks to cry, the poets to die, are mostly somewhat slant. Waves of Hurt, Words Worth, Sad Prose, Wisteria Grow, and I think Tweet It and Grief, as well, of course, as You and Muse. With the imperative Take Me to the Lakes, it becomes clear that Taylor's speaker is addressing her beloved in the second stanza. The inclusion of the beloved is always somewhat circuitous. This is a song about the I, about me, but also about my obsession with myself. That double negation, I'm sending off, but not without my muse, includes him as an afterthought. There is no we in this poem, only I and you. The repeated negations nonetheless come out to something like companionship in the final line. No, not without you. And in fact, the attraction of the lakes for Taylor's speaker is not exactly that they provide an opportunity for deepening a romantic little r connection to her partner. Rather, the lakes promise to remove all the distractions that might interrupt the process of writing elegies eulogizing herself. So the speaker says, I want to watch wisteria grow right over my bare feet because I haven't moved in years. Whenever a poem or song talks about feet, there's always a meaning there of the metrics of verse or the beat of music, a reflection on the poem or song's own pounding onward progress across the ear, as much as the human body's propulsion across the earth. There is too here an image of becoming a statue, a remnant of the past, grown over by nature. This is a sort of death, but one that she can watch, an unbearably self-aware, self-elegizing moment. Taylor's song about wanting to get away is interestingly a song about a vacation. It's not about home in the form of Taylor's native Pennsylvania countryside or the Rhode Island seaside. It's about imagining a possible life elsewhere. What would happen if you threw away all your responsibilities and renewed your relationship to the natural world? It's about want. And most of all, what Taylor wants is to become part of the landscape, to go unnoticed. Importantly, it's also about an impossible want, for a life that not even Wordsworth led, or rather that, for Wordsworth too, was ultimately an impossibility. This song, like No Body, No Crime, imagines a death without a body, the death of the past, and of one's own past self, and that other death, which is to stop changing, to stop moving, to settle down, because no matter how obliquely, it's also a song about having someone with you, about, despite everything, not being alone.
Thanks for listening to episode one of Studies in Taylor Swift. Episode two on Love Story and Dialogism will be out next week. Get in touch with questions, comments, or just to say hi. You're listening to Happy Strummin' by Audionautics.